This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye-bye-bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. To kick things off this Monday, the FTSE 100 closing just a little bit lower today by a third of 1%. The DAX off by about a half of 1% in Frankfurt, Germany. Weighing on a FTSE 100, some of the big oil majors, BP and Shell, pulled lower by a confluence of things, including, of course, the pull down in crude today. We're down by seven tenths on Brent, down by one and three quarters of a percent point on WTI to 57 and about 93 so south of $58 a barrel in the FX market price action really muted sterling going absolutely nowhere at 133.32 we'll get through some of the top stories in just a moment to begin though let's get you your outline for the biggest news worldwide is Charlie Pellet and I thank you very much Jonathan Farrell happy Monday happy Cyber Monday it is the biggest online shopping day of the year in the United States according to one estimate e-commerce on this Cyber Monday expected to rise almost 17% from a year ago. Online spending during the holiday season is projected to make up more than 11% of total retail sales. That is the most ever. UBS is considering buying pieces of Germany's Commerce Bank if they become available. That's according to a Swiss newspaper. Investment bankers who have looked at a potential takeover of Commerce Bank say most rivals would be interested in its corporate bank. Oil trading near the highest in almost two years on the eve of that big OPEC meeting, crude up about 24% since September on speculation that the oil cartel, Russia and their allies will extend production cuts. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrell, back to you. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much, sir. One question on my mind. Did Michael Houston of CMC hit the shops on Friday and over the weekend? Michael? I did. Did yes. you? I've, um, I'm due to pick up a couple of things from uh, John Lewis later this evening. Oh, it's, it was order online and pick up in store. Exactly. That's the new. Uh, I think that's the new way of doing things. The hybrid so, model. The hybrid model. As I understand, sort of, though, it's the purchase is booked as e-commerce, even if you pick it up in store. But you still need to go to the store. Yeah. You I actually tried to get a T-shirt. What is that, Marcus? You've been shopping as well. Yeah, Harry and Meghan T-shirts only for me. Oh, there we go. A retail sales going to go through the roof in the UK then. Mm. Can I just say for the record that I was going to have the whole show without mentioning this pending wedding, <laughs> and, um, and Marcus is the one that didn't that's last very long, it did it? Yeah, I think I think you'll have to buy the beers next week, Marcus. When, <laughs> when I come charged. in, to, when I come in to see you at the new offices. Yeah. Unfortunately, Jonathan, you won't be around. You'll be in. Uh, you'll be in the US. I will be in New York. I'll, I'll miss the wedding and I'll miss the bank holiday. Which, let's face it, for you guys, that's what you're really happy about. Is there going to be a bank holiday? I Is don't that? know. I, I, I imagine they might give us one. I doubt it. No, not big enough. No. No. Okay. Should we talk about Germany? We can. Okay. Yeah. Chancellor Merkel. Um, I guess she's taking a bit more of a pragmatic tone in talks. Social Democrats coming to the table about forming a government. Merkel, of course, saying there's a, a number of urgent issues facing Germany. The best way to face them is with a stable government. She's really trying to reach out to the SPD, and in some ways the SPD uh, sort of reaching out to her as well. We could have a grand coalition, and if these two get together again, Marcus, of course, this would mean in the opposition party, the main opposition would be the AFD. Talk to me about what's set to happen in Germany over the coming weeks. 
Well, it seems to me that um, Merkel has decided it's far easier to bully the uh, Social Democrats uh, into doing what she wants than the Free Democrats, who are rather too revolutionary in their idea of what the uh, ESM uh, would now go on and do. That is the crux to all of this. The European Stability Mechanism is essentially the bailout vehicle, but it comes with Teutonic rules rather than any form of sort of mass Eurobond bailout that... Uh, uh, some of the weaker nations may have once of, of hoped for, particularly Italy, if it continues to have some uh, ongoing problems. So the Free Democrats weren't basically prepared to sign up to um, a rollover of, of, of what happens and let and let sort of the Central European uh, Commission and powers, whatever be, create a, um, a future of Europe which was not uh, in, in anyone's control. Because of that, they walked out, perhaps quite um, honourably in that sense. Then you have a situation where the Social Democrats have been bullied um, their leader, who doesn't want to go anywhere near Merkel, you know, Schultz knows exactly how, how dangerous she can be for uh, to be in a coalition <laughs> with her. And um, he's basically been bullied by his own uh, party into accepting. I think it's a very Germanic feel that there needs to be a strong government yeah. led uh, not by a minority uh, situation. They don't want anything as similar to, obviously, what the UK has and indeed what you might argue Belgium uh, Spain, etc., around the rest of Europe. Something I've learned in the last few weeks that I didn't know, Marcus, and maybe you can give us some colour on. In Germany, there's almost a sense of shame if you are Correct. seen to be upsetting the um, the stability of the government, whereas elsewhere, you're almost rewarded for it. Well, I think that the similar used to always be the case in the, in the UK, I think. I mean, we don't handle coalition governments very well. It's quite uh, destabilising for us. Um, and I think Germany, in that sense, though they have coalitions it's it's not in this sort of fractious sense it, 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 it comes together as a grand coalition everyone wants to have a unified approach uh and, and that sense that's what they used to the jamaica coalition was going to be um, an unstable coalition because the greens and the free democrats had very different uh, opinions on life and really uh, i think yeah. the people are deciding they want Muti from Merkel in the middle there, controlling thing and, and the outward image of, of germany has been a very successful one and that's what they wish to, to Michael, well, yeah, go on. Grand coalitions are all well and good, Marcus, and you know politics is all well and good. But um, for the last 12 years, Germany's had Angela Merkel, and it didn't really matter who you voted for. If you look at the SPD's share of the vote since 1998, it's halved from 40% to 20%, which suggests to me that ultimately, irrespective of who you vote for, it doesn't matter. You've got a one-party or a one-person dictatorship and I think that's why the share of the vote of the CDU the CSU and the SPD has declined so much because ultimately you know unless you unless you vote for anyone apart from the big three you basically get the same leader and I think there is a certain amount of tiredness surrounding right. that and I think a lot of Germans a lot more Germans than say for example 20 years ago yeah. want, to ch want to change it's dropped from 80% those the well, the two main blocks, uh, what they got in the last coalition, to 56% in, in the current one. You know, they don't have anything like the pan. That's why the, the Greens, the Free Democrats have come back, and, of course, the AFD. And that's, that's why um, Schäuble, who now is the president, effectively, of the Bundestag, is going to have a very you know, much more enhanced role in keeping the official opposition um, at, at bay, because that would be the first time that they give official uh, recognition to the AFD. And I think and to he, your point, Michael, you, you talked about um, how it's always mm. Chancellor Merkel. I believe we've only had eight chancellors in seven decades mm. in the post-war era. I mean, that's stability. But, I mean, obviously you're looking at that through the prism of West Germany before the unified Germany came about in, 19, in the 1990s. So, you know, for me, there are great risks politically 
in cobbling together another grand coalition, because ultimately it will reinforce that division in German politics. It's getting been getting wider and wider yeah. for the last 20 years. So well, in the short term, you might get stability, but in the long term, you could get a worse outcome. What's interesting, Michael, though, is, is why isn't there the, in the CD and D, the CSU, push to replace Merkel with someone... Someone new or more vibrant, but they they don't doesn't seem to be that driving. Well, in, Marcus, in I actually thought I thought there might have been mm. after the election results and after after the coalition talks broke down. I thought that was the way these conversations would go, but Michael, it's not what happened at all. The SPD <laughs> came back to the table. Yeah, but uh, that was I think under pressure from Steinmeier, the president who mm-hmm. used to be SPD, and didn't really want to have to have an unstable coalition at a very important time for the European Union. Interesting times. Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist alongside Michael Hewson, Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets. Next up on the cable, we've mentioned the engagement, so why not do Brexit as well? That's next. Prime Minister Theresa May has a week to find a compromise on the conflicting Brexit demands from Ireland. This is going to be a tough, tough deal to make. And it's only one of three things the Prime Minister needs to solve before she gets her trade talks. That's coming up next right here on The Cable. For our listeners across the capital on DAB Digital Radio, you're listening to Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. The UK Prime Minister, Theresa May, has a week to find a compromise on the conflicting Brexit demands from the north and south of Ireland. Irish Prime Minister Leo Varadkar wants written assurances that Brexit won't mean return to checkpoints and towers along what will become the EU's new land frontier with the UK. Meanwhile, Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party, which props up May's government, rejects the EU proposed solution and says the future of the border can only be settled in tandem with a final trade deal. You can see where both sides are coming at all of this from Marcus, but I sit here and I just think there were three things they needed to get through. One was the divorce bill, the second was the rights of EU citizens, and the third was this border issue in Ireland. It seems to me that we've spent a lot of time focusing on the size of the Brexit bill and very little time on what has actually drowned out the other two things ahead of what May would like to call a period where she can actually um, have trade talks. Yeah, I have a fairly uh, robust view on this one, so bear with me. Well, express it, please. Um, I will. Um, I think the Irish are being deliberately uh, difficult here. Uh, One, I think it helps the current political party, Fianna Gael, in a difficult uh, internal tussle, and no other other parties are going to alter from the the Irish line, because that's the one thing they can agree on, actually, funny enough, is to give a hard time to the British. This is the fundamental point of where this negotiations are going to go go wrong because an Irish border is in its very essence all about trade and you can't you can't agree something before you agree a trade deal so the very definition the Irish know exactly what they're doing here and they are right and the one key thing I think is very important here they don't need to veto because virtually every single other country in Europe is going to be behind this view on this because if they can get the British to give in on one of two ways either if they essentially say well we're going to have a, a very poor trade deal, which is actually what the EU want to negotiate, or well, that's their, their position in. Or they give in and go, okay, we'll go for we'll keep the single markets or customs union. The the sort of the middle ground is what a bespoke trade deal, which is what May's trying to get, is ultimately defeated if we insist on a on a deal and a guarantee on the Irish border right here, right now. And everyone knows this. That it's a one great big game of classic brinkmanship 
Yeah. And I, I think what annoys me is that we're not getting, I think, enough, uh, should we say, expose on quite what the Irish are trying to do here. Michael? Hard to disagree with anything, but one thing I did notice today that Michel Barnier gave a talk in Estonia to COSAC, which is um, a meeting of European member MPs. And it was a slightly nuanced a slightly nuanced comment that he said. He spoke of moving on to the next two phases of negotiations, first of all on transition and then on future relationship. Now, that's the first time the negotiations have been refer referred to as three-phase rather than two-phase approach. Transition and trade were lumped into one. And that suggests to me that in the event that they can't come to an agreement on the 4th of December, this will get pushed into March. I think there's a lot of posturing going on here. Obviously, Varadkar's in trouble politically at home. Yeah. And he wants to be seen to be trying to push Ireland's point of view. That's, you know, purely understandable. But I don't see it's in Ireland's interest to push this to the extent whereby the democratic unionists basically hold Theresa May's feet to the fire and ultimately there is no, there's no give. There has to be give. Otherwise, yeah. these talks will be over by the end of this year. Marcus, I'm going to ask the juvenile question. What's the deadline for these talks, given that all of this needs to be ratified once agreed through the 27 parliaments across Europe? Well, I mean, I'm not really sure there ever really is a deadline. I think everyone makes a big hum-har hum about it all. I mean, the reality is it, it can go into next year. It can go well into next year. It can go all the way to the March 2019. It can go beyond, yeah. it, depending on, on, on what everyone wants to agree. I think practically what the problem is, these three things which the EU have insisted on, I mean, dealt with before they go anywhere, which is obviously the, the bill, which clearly has been some progress on. Uh, and I think Theresa May is pushing it as far as she's, she's got on that one. This Irish border, you know, we need to have something, a bit of give, as, as Michael's saying on this before, yeah. otherwise everyone's wasting everyone's time and it, it might just be that, that everyone just goes to the no deal. The tone of this programme drops every time we bring up Brexit. So we're going to leave it there. Next up, we're going to talk shopping, UK retail, global retail, Black Friday and was it Cyber Monday? All of that. That's next. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Black Friday is making headway with bargain-hunting UK consumers, but their £3 billion in spending isn't doing much to help Britain's troubled retail centres. According to Barclay Card, sales on the day of discounting rose about 7%, which suggests British consumers will still buy when the price suits them, even as Brexit fans inflation and cuts economic growth. The gains were driven by online shopping. According to e-commerce researcher PCA Predict With, web sales are up 6%, while the number of shoppers in stores was down by 3.6%, according to researcher Springboard. Michael, you mentioned you went shopping. Um, mm. You're buying clothes. I assume you're not telling many people to buy retail stocks. No. Why not? Um, because I think there's potentially further shrinkage to come in terms of um, floor real estate. Um, I think if you look at some of the some of the stores in major town centres, a lot of them still have two two sites. And really, I think when you actually look at the footfall, when I was walking through Croydon at the weekend, even though Sports Direct was quite busy. It wasn't as busy as, say, for example, it would have been 
two or three years ago. And ultimately, one of the things I have noticed about this particular um, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, the crowds weren't in any way near as as heavy as they were on previous years. And also, I think some of the offerings have really been pretty feeble, you know, usually end-of-line tat that generally the retailers don't really want. And I think consumers are slightly more discerning. But I don't think you're wrong. Marcus Ashworth, Michael Houston going shopping under the veil of research, it seems. Um, for me, I look at the situation and the shift from bricks and mortar to e-commerce, and I just wonder, when I really thought about what the banks went through, 10 years ago or what energy went through a couple of years ago we get a series of headlines about job cuts in the in the case of the banks it would be branch closures it would be pulling back and we'd be talking about vicious cuts have we seen that in retail yet have we seen the aggressive cuts everything with the kitchen sink etc probably not i mean no shopping malls in in the states are are like uh, you know tim <laughs> ghostland and tumbleweed going through a lot of the uh, real estate situation in the states and that clearly is you know the amazon effect which is uh, has certainly hit in this country but has not perhaps fully uh, impacted we've had the situation whereby the out-of-town shopping centers have struggled and then it all became more sort of uh, smaller metro stores and, and and what have you there's no doubt about it the whole retail area is in flux the shift as we know to e-commerce is is something which is only going to pick up but I think there's another effect here, which is that we've almost talked ourselves into this level of misery. Um, yeah. we've, we follow retail and fashion very closely on Gadfly. Uh, Andrew Felster, my colleague, is, has turned the, the most sort of black that I've known her since I've been working with her. She's definitely worried about uh, next year. And uh, she thinks that lots of the stuff that you may see in, in this sort of last hurrah of Black Friday will, will, will not carry through into, into next year. I mean, 2016 Christmas was a very strong one. I think from now on to the rest of 2017 Christmas could be pretty um, horrid. Now we yeah. know that we have obviously potentially a royal wedding coming up, which does cheer the cheer the soul and the spirit, I'm sure, for many. But you know, <laughs> equally, we've got terrible weather coming, um, and I think that might uh, hit Christmas quite hard. Well, I wonder where the opportunities are. Equities had a big sell-off. When I look back at Tesco, and I think this is a really interesting example, a couple of years ago when Tesco went through this really big structural shift and had to really reassess its real estate portfolio and what the future of that company was amid falling prices in, uh, in retail and, and grocery prices as well, the opportunity was in the debt. It wasn't in the equity markets. And I was talking to Alan Higgins of Coots about this over email today. And he said, it's great when a company effectively becomes managed for debt holders. And recent companies include Glencore, Petrobras and, and Tesco. Is that the situation that retail is in now? Is it being managed for the debt holders yet? Tesco is a very interesting one. I've written a couple of things about their uh, bond buybacks. They're, they're getting a lot savvier and they clearly want to come back up to investment grade. I think the management of Tesco are in a much better space, as is Marks and Spencer's. Uh, these guys are, are, are really, really have you know, had a very tough time. And they're probably the two stocks I'd watch the closest because if they can get their acts together, then the middle ground is, is going to be less squeezed by the oldie and littles on, on one side. Yeah. And clearly, uh, the, the higher quality sort of waitresses and indeed going up, going up sort of the fashion chain as well. You know, that's really, we've had this sort of squeezing in the middle effect the last year or two. The, the big boys of Marks and Spencer's and Tesco in particular have got much, much savvier. But you're right, they're having to manage much more on it with an with eye to the bondholder than perhaps than they, they have in the past. And Sainsbury's has adopted a quite a decent model with its integration with Argos, because obviously it's taken over its um, delivery um, 
know, it's, it's, it's a delivery um, cycle. So yeah. you have click and collect, you have premium delivery. Um, the biggest problem that Sainsbury's has got is the fact that a lot of Argos's stores were a little bit tired. So you may see some rationalisation there. So a question I want to ask you, Michael, is where the opportunity is in retail uh, around the equity. And what we've seen in the United States is, of course, the, the much written about and talked about publicised shift onto e-commerce, Amazon, the big winner there. But if you think about what underpins... Well, Walmart's done quite well. They've had well, a fantastic done. year too, but also on the back of a big investment in e-commerce as well, mm. Michael. But my question would be, that shift from bricks and mortar to e-commerce, underpinning that is a shift from cash to cashless payments. And some things that have had big, big years this year that I don't think has been talked about enough is the likes of Visa, PayPal, Square. Mm. They've had massive years in terms of equity returns. Is it the highway that you want to play in e-commerce and the cashless payment systems as opposed to the, um, the cars that ride that highway, Michael? This reminds me of a discussion that we had about blockchain and Bitcoin. Yeah. Was it the highway or was it the actual people that are travel, traveling on the highway? Honestly, John... I think it's a little bit uncertain at the moment, and I think you're just going to have to play a watching brief because, you know, obviously talking about well pay as well, um, they, they they got bought by someone, didn't they? There's been massive consolidation yeah. in this sector this year, and I, and I think there will continue to be so until the uh, until the pathway becomes an awful lot clearer. Well, as someone's commented today, many times I've heard this: when there's a gold rush, you sell the picks and shovels. You don't start digging for gold. Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. Michael Hewson, Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets in London. Gents, great to catch up with you. A smart conversation about politics, retail sales, and a little bit of Brexit and an engagement as well. Guys, thank you. Up next, we take it to the United States. The Senate may vote on tax cut legislation as early as Thursday. We'll discuss more next. For the City of London on Bloomberg Radio, you listen to The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Cameron Christ, macro strategist for Bloomberg, around the table with Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg, and Charlie Pellet joining me in here as well. PAX Studio in New York City. Cameron, West Ham. Big game this week, Everton. Yeah, well, Moisey goes back to his old stomping grounds, and let's see if the uh, let's see if the lads can ascend the table with a victory <laughs> against the, perhaps the only side other than Palace that's more hapless than them. Yeah, so so South London doing East London a little bit of a favour at the moment. I, looking at the league table, I was shocked to see five six points separating basically the top ten. And relegation. Yeah, well, as we were saying, it's it's like a a, a top-heavy equity index. Yes, you know, not much like, breadth yeah, to the Premier Apple, League. Yeah, you know, kind of there's Apple, there's Facebook, and the rest are like you know Equifax. On the other hand, <laughs> you consider the last few years, there's a little more volatility than usual. That's true. That's true compared to what's happening in financial markets. And we've got a Spurs fan. I mean, Technically, the in the same. studio, we have a Spurs fan well, in Michael McKee. Yeah, I'm representing my son. Who's, what's, uh, what's his name, Mike? Uh, Liam. And he supports Tottenham. He How did this happen? Tottenham. How did I he become no a Spurs idea. fan? I, I, Came I, I home one day, he was a Tottenham fan. I have to I'm say, sure. I'm looking at you in a whole new light. If you have, <laughs> it's not a particularly favorable one. <laughs> Kit Jukes of Sock Gen is, a, is well known on this program as being an Arsenal fan. Does Kit know who your son supports, Mike? We have not uh, talked about that. I you know, I don't bring it up. Um, I remember, <laughs> well, you know. You, you shouldn't in polite company, if that's, <laughs> if that's what you have to say. Years ago, being in the uh, Bloomberg newsroom in London, uh, and uh, it was either you were either Man U or Arsenal. 
And yeah. That was the only choice you were given. Well, I guess it's changed now for kids because Manchester yeah. City didn't really feature in the conversation yeah, growing and up. Chelsea and, 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 and Chelsea like that, didn't yeah. either. Charlie Pellet, of course, British but with an American accent. Did Charlie get a football team? No, I didn't. And I, I, didn't I, I, yeah, I tell you, perhaps Arsenal because intelligent people tend to support Arsenal. And is, that, that, a, uh, is that a fact? Uh, that, that's, that's, that's part of it, but also too... Uh, Are we making this up? But, 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 right uh, I, I knew a few spot traders that uh, <laughs> might contradict that assessment. But, 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 but also too, my cousin was a big Millwall fan, so you know that oh, perhaps wow. that's where well, the Arsenal than Millwall. That, that is, a, that is a, a West Ham fan. That I is a road I do not want to go down on this program. Much respect for football fans across the country, including those of Millwall. Charlie Pellets, we get you some uh, top stories. Sir. Let us turn to another sport. That is shopping. It is the biggest online shopping day of the year in the United States, according to one estimate. E-commerce on Cyber Monday expected to rise almost 17 percent from a year ago. UBS considering buying pieces of Germany's Commerce Bank if they become available. That's according to a Swiss newspaper. Investment bankers who have looked at a potential takeover of Commerce Bank say most rivals would be interested in its corporate bank. Oil trading near the highest close in almost two years on the eve of the big OPEC meeting crude up about 24% since September on speculation that the oil cartel Russia and their allies will extend production cuts. That is the latest uh, from the news desk. Our football chat continues right here on Bloomberg Radio. I would get in so much trouble if I continued this. (laughs) But we get a lot more listeners. (laughs) Actually, you might be right. I think people are more interested at the moment in talking about football than they are about hearing about markets that really aren't doing much. The FTSE 100 down by about a third of 1% at the close. The pull down from some of the oil majors. Charlie mentioning the big rally crude has had over the last couple of months. Today, though, it's just a little bit softer. On Brent, we're down by a half of 1% to 63.55. WTI down by about 1.5% to about $58. In the FX market, really muted price action in G10 today. The pound really stable against the US dollar, dead flat at 133.32. And in the bond market, earlier on, treasuries with a bit of a bid. Yields coming in by about a basis point on the 10-year. That's where we stay at, 233. Yields climbing just a little bit at the front end, but nothing dramatic here. I'd say the yield curve's flattening by a single basis point or two throughout much of the session so far. Twos versus tens down to about 57, 58 basis points. So that gives you a feel of this market. What I really like doing with Michael McKee is not wasting my time reading articles in the New York Times or the Washington Post on, on tax reform because they take ages to read and Michael can just tell me what's happening in about 60 seconds. <laughs> Michael, you've done a great job over the last couple of months of really simplifying what is a very, very complex debate and making it very straightforward. As we approach what is, to many people, another make or break week, what's on the line this week? Well, this is the make or break week because the Senate is expected to vote. And if it if tax reform were to get tripped up, it would be this week because the Republicans have only a uh, two-vote margin. And so they, they've got to retain uh, all of their votes pretty much to get it through. Uh, the latest seems to be that there were a group of eight to ten senators with individual concerns about what uh, about the about the bill as written, and they are one by one sort of falling away. Rand Paul said earlier today that he would vote for taxes. There's a report that Jerry Moran of Kansas, uh, who was concerned about the individual mandate when they did the uh, attempt to roll back uh, Obamacare, uh, that he was concerned. And now, apparently, he says that's not an obstacle for uh, a yes vote for him. Lisa Murkowski, who was uh, thought of as a possible no vote over the mandate, says that won't stand in her way. Uh, They've also kind of bought her off with a a deal to open up drilling in the Arctic uh, National Wildlife Refuge. So 
um, it's uh, it, it, it's it's still looking favorable. That's how you get my vote for tax through. cuts. Well, that's what they're doing now. This yeah. is where we are. We're at a point where the, they have a deeply flawed bill that uh, has raised objections from a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. So they're they're horse trading. They're going back and forth, and they're saying, you know, what does it take to get you to vote for this bill? And then they plug in that demand and see mathematically how that affects the final figures, because remember, they got to keep it under uh, $1.5 trillion in deficit spending. And and so they got to tweak more than one thing to yeah. get your vote, and then somebody else has another one. So this is going to go on until they get it to the floor. So, Mike, when you're horse trading, you engage in that if you're on the other side, if you're a senator, if you care about getting reelected. If you're retiring... As I understand Corker, and I also understand Jeff Flake is as well, right, Mike? Uh, Jeff Flake is retiring. Bob Corker is retiring. So were they interested in the horse trading? That's an interesting question because, uh, and you've got to throw it John McCain in there, who just won re-election, but obviously the yeah. man has brain cancer and uh, a very sad story. He's probably not going to be running again either. So he has a bit of a free hand. Uh, they have all expressed to one extent or another concerns about the deficit that will result from this, John McCain voted against the 2001 Bush tax cuts because of the deficit. So um, they maybe uh, care a little bit less about horse trading and about the future of the Republican majority yeah. than others. The deficit hawks have, have gone missing once they're in power. It seems to be the trend in um, in America, Cameron. But the situation in the bond market is, is fascinating because it doesn't feel like to me that we're pricing anything in from a tax package that looks like it's going through seemingly. Uh, I think that's probably right because I suppose unsurprisingly the bond market, as is usually the case, is more fixated on monetary policy. And, yeah. you know, last week Janet Yellen gave a speech where she sort of mused publicly that the inflation short shortfall from the target may be something more permanent than mobile phone pricing distortions and other idiosyncratic factors. You love bringing that up, don't you? Uh, well, it's you know it's my go-to, <laughs> my go-to thing, right? Uh, and then the minutes of the Federal Reserve, November Federal Reserve meeting, I think were appropriately viewed as being a little bit dovish. Yeah. Uh, again, with a number of members um, expressing similar reservations and even talking about price level targeting. Michael, just short and sweet, what's tougher this week and beyond? Is it getting this through the Senate or the Senate and the House agreeing what this bill actually looks like in the end? Uh, probably getting it through the Senate. Okay. The, they'll, they'll come up with something that works to try to sell it to the whole Congress. Michael McKee and Cameron Christ sticking with me. Next up on the program, guess what we're going to talk about? Bitcoin and this relentless search seemingly heading towards $10,000. Cryptomania define the skeptics. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. So tell me about Bitcoin. That seems to be like the go-to line for anyone I bump into that I haven't seen for a while after we get past hello, how are you and what you've been up to. It, it seems to be the go-to line for so many people. And over the Thanksgiving holiday, I wonder how many people had a discussion across the table outside of financial markets, within financial markets, and ended up talking about Bitcoin. Michael McKee around the table with me today with Cameron Christ of Bloomberg. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow, and this is The Cable on DAB Digital Radio. Guys, through 8,000, then through 9,000, seemingly on course for 10,000. Mike Novogratz, famed investor in the United States, came on Bloomberg TV just last week and said, 
year-end target 10,000. And everyone said, okay, I mean, it's a big target. But we've had a great run. I, I'm not sure he meant like next week. I think he meant in a month or so, Cameron. The relentless rise of Bitcoin, your thoughts? Well, you're taking someone something with no real intrinsic value other than scarcity and trying to, you know, any number. It's like you've gone through the looking glass or, or down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Any number that you want to put on it is is realistic because there is nothing you can sort of hang your hat on and say this is its ultimate, you know, ultimate worth. And as you say, it, it's a bit of a religion. And, you know, if you... You know, really, you need to be an anthropologist to adequately assess Bitcoin and see how many, <laughs> yeah. see how many boxes the you know of classic religion that that it that it ticks. And I think personally, I think it ticks. Uh, you know, it, it ticks a lot of them. And so we're now at the stage where, you know, famously in 1929, before the Great Depression and the, and, and the first Great Crash, shoe shine boys were giving advice on on stocks. And now, sort of the latter day equivalent is the Uber driver telling you how much. How much he or she is making. With the exception, Cameron, that I think is different this time around is that when retail got in last, so when the shoeshine boy recommended the stock, it meant Wall Street needed to get out. And I think what's different about this is that Wall Street is the last to get in. Joe Weissenthal at Bloomberg came on this program and talked about that with me a while back. And I remember him saying it and thinking, you know what, he's right. He put out a tweet on it and I just thought, yes. This is damn right. For the first time in a long, long time, we have what many people would consider a bubble, but Wall Street are the last in and not the first, Cameron. Well, yeah, I think that's right. And in fact, retail investors are the second. You know, U.S. at least based retail investors are probably the second last in. I mean, a lot of the trading has happened in Asia yeah. and other emerging market countries. I mean, if you look at, say, volumes, recently there's been a massive spike in Venezuela <laughs> as they're, you know, they're defaulting on government debt, and this obviously the economic situation there is a uh, an economic and a human tragedy, yeah. and people want to get their money out in any way they can, and Bitcoin is an obvious way to circumvent capital controls. Michael, it's a double-edged sword, because if you ask people why they value it so much, it's because of exactly what Cameron just outlined. The government can't touch it. That could also be the very thing that brings it down eventually. In your experience over the last couple of years, when Bitcoin comes up with regulators, officials, anyone that's down in D.C. that would have an interest in something like this, where are they moving towards? Where's that conversation drifting towards? And does it result in some kind of policy that trims the wings of cryptocurrencies? Uh, drift is a good word because there's there hasn't been a huge amount of regulatory focus on it because it hasn't been a big enough issue. Uh, the price levels get their attention and you're finally getting to the point where there's a significant value to cryptocurrencies. I mean, we use Bitcoin interchangeably, but remember, there's several dozen of these things yeah. out there. Oh, like 800. Uh, yeah. And, and so um, there, we're probably getting to the point where we're going to see consumer protection regulation. In other words, you know, something that will keep you from losing your shirt or aimed at keeping you from losing your shirt on a on a faux cryptocurrency or something that that isn't really real but it'll really take hold when people start looking at uh the seniorage, you know, the money that the government loses by not having control over its own currency, um, that'll get their attention and if if it gets that far again, up know. almost 900% 
in 2017. Yeah, and, and I wonder how many people who realize gains like that are going to report it on their tax return. Yes. Well, I think that's going to be there's a big a, test. That is a good question. <laughs> if, if that even comes up and, yeah. and next year how they respond. Cameron Christ, Michael McKee sticking with me. Next up on the program, we'll preview the rest of your week ahead. A lot of traffic in D.C., a lot going on. So we'll get to that, including some of those Fed hearings with the current Fed chair and potentially the new one as well. That's next. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.48 in the city. Some highlights for your week ahead. Tomorrow, the confirmation hearing for Fed Chair nominee Jerome Powell begins at 3 p.m. UK time. Then we're going to get the Bank of England publishing annual stress test alongside the financial stability review, looking at the health of UK banks. Look out for that at some point through Tuesday. Then Wednesday, the day after Jay Powell goes to his confirmation hearing as Fed chair, the current Federal Reserve Fed chair, Janet Yellen, testifies before the Congressional Joint Economic Committee in Washington at 3 p.m., so 24 hours later. Then, of course, earlier in the day, we'll get U.S. GDP for the third quarter, probably expanded at 3.2% at an annualized rate. This is the uh, government's second estimate projection. Then on Thursday, U.S. personal spending, Friday, manufacturing in the United States. For me, Michael, it's going to be really interesting to see how the Fed chair's testimony matches up to Jay Powell's testimony just the previous day. Is it better for Jay Powell to go before her or after her? Because he's going before her. Well, it depends on whether you're Jay Powell or whether you're sitting on a trading desk. If if you're Jay Powell, you want to go first and say as little as possible because then people would not be comparing you as much to Janet Yellen, which is what the trader would like to do, would like to say, well, what's the difference between the two so I can – you know, look to trade uh, trade that into 2018. A uh, couple of other things will be interesting this week. The GDP report, the personal income and spending report actually contains the latest PCE inflation number. That's what the Fed watches. So that'll be interesting to see. Um, and then we get all these other Fed speakers and what, what you want to look for in their remarks. And we just had Uh, Robert Kaplan from Dallas out with an essay uh, minutes ago in which he says he thinks that the neutral rate for the Fed is 2.5%. Well, the latest projections for the Fed had it at like 2.9%. So if everybody's coming down, that might give you a clue as to what the forecast is going to be coming out of the December 13th meeting, and that will influence what everybody thinks the interest rate path is going to be next year. So that's something to keep in mind if others bring up what they think the neutral rate is going to be next year. So 2.5%, if that's the neutral rate, what does that mean for markets and how we position currently, Cameron? Well, I think it's not out of line with how market pricing is. The, the interesting thing about the last, uh, the last year is that the market has shown a very acute reluctance to price in the amount of rate hikes from the Fed that is implied by the you know, the infamous dot plot. Uh, and I think part of that is, a, if you will, a risk premium um, based on this idea that the neutral rate keeps, the perceived long-term rate keeps keeps coming down. Um, now, the Fed itself, however, has said that 
while the current, well, many members think that the the current real neutral rate is is zero, yeah. which would actually imply a nominal neutral rate of, of less than two and a half. Over time, that should uh, go up as resource utilization continues to rise. So even if Kaplan uh, or others think that the current neutral rate, nominal rate is two and a half. That doesn't imply that in say in 2019 they'll have the same view. But it's a very yeah. I'll concede it's a very tricky tightrope to walk. So Mike, if resource utilization is going to pick up and the neutral rate's going to rise, let's plug in some fiscal stimulus into that conversation. What happens then? Well, uh, if you got the if a fiscal stimulus had the impact that the Republicans say it will have, then you'd have the Fed having to raise rates more quickly because inflation would be rising because the economy would be growing at a much faster pace. It's still too early to know because we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But the best guesstimates from analysts who've tried to tease out what the final bill might look at is that it won't add that much to growth, maybe uh, three to six tenths over uh, the next two or three years. Um, Goldman Sachs, you know, two to three tenths uh, is, is their forecast. So you're not looking at a at rocket fuel for the economy. Yeah. And so uh, maybe the Fed doesn't have to react as quickly. It's also a question of whether we're looking at a structural change to inflation, in which case maybe the tax Bill doesn't have a lot of impact. Um, that that's a question uh, because uh, it, it, we don't know whether it's structural or just a very slow cycle that is at work here. Mike, when when Jay Powell goes in front of Congress this week, talk to me about the nature of these hearings that we can expect for Fed Chair confirmation hearings. Typically, I think. We pose them, and I explored this with you on Bloomberg TV earlier. The kind of questions that I want to hear Jay Powell asked is what we would get if we had a Wall Street confirmation hearing. We have a Congress confirmation hearing. Do the nature of the questions change? They do a little bit. Some of the questions are just so obvious, like why isn't inflation rising and why yeah. can't your policy do something about it, that you'll probably get something along those lines. And we know his view on rules-based policymaking. He doesn't like it because there's no particular rule that encompasses everything. Um, it's the, perhaps the nuances... Um, questions about speed, questions about the impact on the markets. It'd be interesting to hear if anybody asks about the flattening of the yield curve, that sort of I'd thing. I'd love for that um, to come that, up. And I imagine someone's going to pass you, one yeah, of these congressmen yeah. a question and say, ask it. You might. Um, this may be a more low-key hearing than we're used to. Yeah. Since he's a Republican, Republican Senate, they got a lot of other things to do. They may not go after him. But uh, it would be interesting for them to try to get at what he would do in the event of another downturn. But, but, Mike, this isn't their guy, is it? Their guy was John Taylor for many Republicans. Jay Powell isn't it. Yeah, but he's still he's still a Republican, a do-no-harm kind of guy uh, at a time when they have bigger fish to fry. they got a tax bill yeah. to pass. they got a government to keep open. Yeah, and many of these hearings, at least the, like the Yellen equivalent, they're not so much questions as, as statements or, you know, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, rants sort of disguised o as a question. Often they're rants. You know, there'll be a five minute speech and then in the, the question will be, don't you think? Or yeah. something like that at, at, yeah. the, at, at the very I'm sorry, end. I'm out of time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, what would be interesting, in addition to the yield curves, if he's questioned about the dots, because he has expressed some 
skepticism about those as well. Yeah, if he'd get rid of them Boy, or if not. if he said, yeah, I'll get rid of them. Would that you, would be some news. Would you like them to get, to get rid of them, yeah. Mike? Would you like Wall that? Street would. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cameron. More of all. Uh, everyone Happy wants, days. Everyone yeah. Happy wants days. Okay, Cameron Cross, Michael McKee, thank you. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. We'll be back tomorrow. A jam-packed week for the Federal Reserve and for Congress. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 